Well, this morning we're starting a new sermon series, and we're in the book of Ezra. And the part that we're going to be looking at this morning comes at a point where a group of people, the Jewish people, face a stark choice. I think as nations, there comes a time, doesn't there, where we all face choices. We've just recently had a referendum. We had a general election just 18 months ago, I think it was. And over the other side of the Atlantic, there is a general election about to happen. I don't know if you've watched any of the debates, anybody? What's better than turning the debates into song? Okay, just watch the screen for a few moments. Amazing. Do you think people get paid for making that? Well, we're starting this new series, as I said, on the book of Ezra. And is it a book that we know well? No, I can't imagine it's a book many of us would turn to on a regular basis. But I believe it's a book that God actually has an awful lot to say to us as a church, as individuals, through it. Now, before we actually launch into the Bible reading, we need to get a bit of background because um, there's a lot we need to understand about what was going on at this time in order for us to understand the book itself. So in 587 BC, the unthinkable happened. Solomon's temple that had been stood there since 964 BC was destroyed and overrun by the Babylonians, totally destroyed, and the people were taken off into exile. This had been the temple that God's presence had physically dwelt within, the place where sacrifices were made for sin. And it was gone. Because at the end of Solomon's reign, this is back in 964 BC, just after then when it had been built, Solomon started to disobey God. He started to do things that God didn't want him to do. And when he died, the nation of Israel, that had been one big country, got split in two. There was Israel in the north, I don't know if you can see that from the back, and then Judah in the south. And it was Judah where the temple was, where Jerusalem was. Both these two nations then continued to drift away from God. Israel fell first to the Assyrians in the 7th century BC, and then you come to Judah, 587, and the, the whole of the temple, the whole of Jerusalem is destroyed. The prophets had warned that it was coming. They said, if you don't get back to following God's ways, destruction will come. You will be taken into exile. You go even further back into the law, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 33. And God has said, if the people kept disobeying him repeatedly, they would be scattered among the nations. Jeremiah, more recently, had said in Jeremiah 25, verse 11, that actually you will spend 70 years in Babylonia. You'll spend 70 years serving the king of Babylon. So when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, they took all the people off with them. And the people went into exile. And it's when they're in exile, when they're away from their homeland, the things start to change. Whoever got sent out of the classroom at school? Normally for talking, in my case. You get sent out because when you're stood in the corridor, you're meant to start thinking about things that you're not able to think of in the classroom. And we still do it in, in today's world, don't we? We send people away to try and get the message through. What's the prison system about? Well, part of it is about taking people out of society who've committed a crime to get them to think more about it. We send our dog in the garden when she's misbehaved. Not sure she quite understands why, but we do it anyway. But the reality of exile did what the threat of exile couldn't do. 
it started to make God's people think again. It started to make them think about what they'd lost, about the relationship with God that they had lost. You need to read the book of Daniel, really, to get a lot of this background. But in Psalm 137, verses 1 and following, there is a psalm that was written while they were in Babylon. There is a song about this, but I'm not going to sing it. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs and our our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing one of the songs of Zion. And so the 70 years went on and on and on. Three generations were growing up who had not seen Jerusalem. And then God steps in and God intervenes. And we get to the book of Ezra. The Babylonian Empire is now gone and there's a new king in place, King Cyrus, who is the king of the Persians. So if you now have a Bible and you want to turn to the book of Ezra, it's on page 454. Now, if you're looking at the newsletter, you'll see that we're doing the whole of chapters 1 and 2. I hope you'll forgive me for not reading beyond verse 3 of chapter 2. You'll see why when you look at it. If anyone wants to volunteer to come and read this, you're very welcome. So starting at the beginning. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may may their God be with them and let them go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord for the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And any in locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out all the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, and a place in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had bought them by Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazar bought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now these are all the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, all to their own towns, in company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sephariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misbah, Bigvi, Rohum, and Banar. And then you get this long list. If anyone wants to carry on reading, be my guest. If not, let's pray. 
Loving God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. I want to pray that as we look at these ancient words, these words that are two and a half thousand years old, that you will speak into our day, into our time by your spirit. Lord, just give us insight into what this can mean for us today. We ask it for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. If you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, I want to ask you a question. What's more important to you? Your comfort or stepping out into an adventure with the Lord? What's more important, your comfort or stepping out into an adventure with the Lord? As I said at the beginning, this is a book that starts off with a very stark choice for the Jews. Are they going to stay in Babylon? Or are they going to up sticks and make a 980-mile journey to Jerusalem? Cyrus issues a decree. He wants people to go back and rebuild the temple. You see, Cyrus had a very different way of thinking about the world to the Babylonians. He liked to send people back to their own lands. I don't know if anyone's seen this before. This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. And on that is written a decree of this same king who is mentioned here, sending another group of people back to their own land. So it was the way that he worked. He would send people back to their own land so they could um, raise taxes and bring him more money. Just as I read this passage here, you know, it amazes me how God works. It amazes me that actually, sometimes we can look at our world and we can think everything is spiraling downwards. You know, we hear rumors of wars. We see war in Syria and across the Middle East. We see things that are going terribly wrong. But actually, you know, God is at work. God is still at work. God is working through the nations of the world. And so at the start of this chapter, what we also see is God doing two things. First of all, he moves Cyrus's heart. And secondly, he stirs the heart of the people. So God does two things. I hope my apostrophe is in the right place. I think it is, isn't it? Is it in the right place? Yes? Good. I'm never quite sure on apostrophe. But he does two things. Sometimes we can find ourselves asking questions about God's will, can't we? How do I know whether God is calling me to do something? How do I know if it's God speaking? Is it possible to miss what God has for me? I find this is a passage that really is encouraging in that situation. Now, we don't make a watertight doctrine from one passage. We can't say that this is how God always works. But actually, what we find God here doing is speaking in two ways. First of all, he speaks through the king, the one who enables the journey back to Jerusalem to take place. The people couldn't have got to Jerusalem if the king hadn't have said, you're free to go. Well, actually, I want you to go. But then what God also does is he stirs the heart of the people, so they want to go. So they're up for this adventure. They're up for what God has for them. You know, God will often confirm his will to us if we seek him. He will often speak to us in ways that it's coming at us from different angles so we know what God is saying. So what I want us to do with this passage, really, is to look at the two cities that are options for the people. Are they going to stay in Babylon? And some of them will do, because we find out later in the book that more exiles return later on. Or are they going to go straight away to Jerusalem? So Babylon, 
Babylon was a big city by ancient standards. 150,000 or so people lived there. This is possibly what it looked like, full of that great big temple in the middle, the walls, the great hanging gardens, even had its own library. Not sure I should be talking about libraries at the moment, but it had its own library. And the exiles who lived there were generally, as time went on, treated well. Read the book of Daniel again, you'll find that out. In, In other words, just go and read the book of Daniel. You really need to, to understand what this book is about. And for the exiles, they'd lived there for 70 years. They'd settled down. The prophet Jeremiah had told them in um, chapter 29 of Jeremiah, marry, have children, seek the prosperity of the city, because if the city prospers, you will prosper too. So basically, you're going to be there for a long time. Get on with life. But learn to be a distinctive people. Learn to be God's people in a foreign place. So by the time you get to King Cyrus, if you were a Jew living in Babylon, the chances are you'd be comfortable, you're established, life is relatively easy, there's lots of food, it's a safe place to live, and probably things are quite comfortable. I want to forward wind us to 2016, to us here living in Lim. You know, we're not in exile. But we are following Jesus 2,000 years after he walked the face of the earth. We are 3,270 miles drive away from Jerusalem. You can try it out later if you want. It's a long way away. We're culturally worlds away from that world of the early church. And effectively, we've learned to worship and honor God in a foreign situation to what the early church had. For centuries, at least, England has been nominally a Christian country. Even today, we can worship freely. We, we worship here today without risk or threat. We can share our faith. But I wonder sometimes, have we just got far too comfortable? We just sit back and everything is too easy. We may sing our songs like the Jewish exiles did on the banks of the Mersey. doesn't quite sound the same, does it? But we have our weekly round of services, of prayer meetings, of Bible studies. It's all great stuff. But are we just too comfortable? A few years ago, I was talking to a a vicar of a a church, and this church had the most amazing building. It was um, one of the Wellington Victory churches. I don't know if you've seen them, with a big round tower, and they look sort of a bit like an old temple. And you went in this church, and at the front, there was this enormous picture of the ascension of Jesus, really awe-inspiring building. And this building was seat between 800 and 1,000 people. Congregation at that point was about 60 in this, this great big building. But the church leader there, he said, you know, when revival comes, this place is going to be packed out. He said, we won't be able to keep people in. But in the meantime, they kept going round and round with their services, their coffee mornings, all this other stuff that they were doing, all good stuff. But it was very comfortable. As we go through the book of Ezra, renewal is coming. Revival will take place amongst the Jewish people. But it comes so at a massive cost to them. They don't just go around doing the same things over and over again and expecting something different to happen. <clears throat> what they actually do is take a massive, massive step of faith. The seeds are sown in Babylon. The roots start to show in Babylon. 
but the people need to be obedient to God's call. They have to get up and they have to move out. Where are you up to today? Is your life a life of Babylon? Is it a life where comfort has priority? Where just the easy stuff, the ticking over, all those kind of things are going on and it's good? What about us as a church? Are we a church who are relatively comfortable in our nice warm building? Where actually we're just ticking round, we're going through the motions, we talk a good talk, but actually are we prepared to take that next step? We had our rock conversation 10 days ago, and I haven't got the report yet. I don't think anyone else has. No? You've got the draft. So I'm looking forward to seeing this report that will be coming out any day. Um, so that'll be really exciting. But as we start to unpack this report from the, this conversation, there was a conversation between churches and um, local authority and police and fire, people of goodwill across limbs to look at what are the real needs of the area. If God calls us to something specific, even if it involves a massive risk, are we up for doing it? Are we a risk-taking people? Or are we going to be people who sit back and enjoy Babylon for a bit longer? Some of the exiles did stay. They didn't all go. But some of them took the risks and went from here to here. It's not got much going for it, really, has it? Not when you look at the previous one. Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple was destroyed. It was a forcibly depopulated city. It was a war zone. For the older people who came back to have seen it, when they'd known its former glory, it would have been devastating. And we'll pick that up later on in the book. For those who've never known Jerusalem, they might not even have thought it existed. There could have been all kinds of questions in their mind. And to go would be this massive step from going from civilization to an unknown adventure, but knowing that God was with them. Is your heart being stirred for an adventure with God today? Are you a verse 5 sort of person? If you've got your Bible there still in front of you, it says about everyone whose heart God had moved. Or do you want to stay in Babylon? Are we a verse 5 church? Or do we want to stay in the place of comfort? The returning exiles, they knew the promises of God. They knew the prophecies that God was fulfilling. But there is one thing to know all this stuff. There's another thing to step out and put it into practice. There's another thing to take the risk and to step out and travel towards Jerusalem. The biggest step of faith that any person today can take is actually simply to say that Jesus is Lord. It's to move to that place of saying, Jesus, I acknowledge who you are, that you have come, that you died on the cross for me, that you offer me forgiveness, you offer me eternal life. If you were here last week, we had Barry Woodward with us, and he was encouraging people to to look at taking that first step of following Jesus. But he also offered people a second step. And it was a second step, if you like, of recommitment, of saying, actually, I'm the verse 5 type of person. I am following you, but Lord, but my heart is being stirred again. God, you're calling me to something different. You know, any response to God ultimately needs legs, doesn't it? It needs to get up and go somewhere. Otherwise, it will just fizzle out and not do anything. The disciple, the call of a disciple of Jesus, is not the one-off call to tick a box. But it's the daily response of saying yes to the things and purposes of God. It's not about um, having the settled life in Babylon. 
but about risk-taking in Jerusalem. And so the people go. They take an awful lot of bowls with them, an awful lot of silverware, all the stuff from the old temple. They've got the promises of God in their heart. And as the book of Ezra unfolds, it's not going to be easy. We'll see this over the coming weeks. There'll be times of struggle, there'll be times when they face opposition, times when they're thinking, probably what on earth have we done? But they're doing God's will. They're part of God's purposes. And the temple that they're going to rebuild will be the same temple that Jesus ends up talking about. Think of that being um, part of the promises of God. Today we have a calling as church, don't we? We We're called by the Great Commission to go make disciples of all nations. We're not called to a journey of life on the sofa watching Netflix. We're not called to an eternity on Facebook. But we're called to be a sent people. We're called to be salt and light. Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And it goes on further on. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. God is stirring you today. If you're a verse 5 sort of person, we can always try and argue God away. We can always say, well, I'm too young. I haven't got enough experience. Or I'm too old. I've got too much experience but not enough energy. Or my work life is too busy. Or you may say, well, family life is too busy. I've got too many commitments. But look what happens here. As we go through the book, men, women, young, old, respond. I'm sure they had good reason not to. I'm sure they too were very busy. I'm sure they were caught up in the the things of Babylon and all the goings and comings out of that city but they responded to God. I wonder, is God calling you today? Maybe that initial call, maybe that initial call to to just say Jesus is Lord and to start that journey of discipleship with him. Or perhaps it's a more personal thing. Perhaps you feel actually, individually, you've, you've let yourself get into Babylon and you're just a bit comfortable and actually the call of God isn't resonating in you like it used to be. And you're making all kinds of excuses why you can't do this, that, or the other. And God is saying, will you leave that comfort and come on an adventure? It'll be exciting. We'll find that in the book. There'll be times when it's it's a bit close to the wire. But it's doing God's will. And it's seeing his kingdom come. Now, I don't know what that response will be for you today. It may be that the response to step out is just simply sharing your faith with a neighbor. Maybe getting involved with a group in church. But it might be that actually God is shaking you and saying, I've been calling you to go somewhere for years and years and years, and you're constantly putting it off. Will you be a verse 5 person this morning? Will you let your heart be stirred? And to us as a church, you know, we're always called to go. The Bible says that. That's constant. That never changes. But I do get a sense for us as a church that over the coming months, there are going to be some big decisions we make. Coming out of the rock conversation, all our talk about mission, how we're looking at um, using what God has given us to reach out into limb and beyond. Are we up for an adventure? Or do we just want to stay comfortable? 
Are we up for having our hearts stirred so that God will call us to unknown destinations, but we know his spirit is with us? Or do we just sit back? The choice is ours. How will we respond to God? Let's pray. Lord, you are always calling us. But so often we have our fingers in our ears. We have our list of excuses that we run off time and time again. Lord, I just want to pray today if perhaps just someone in this room is being called in a fresh way by you, Lord, that by your spirit you will enable us to answer. Lord, I want to thank you for the inspiration of this ancient book and these, this group of people who left safety and went on a journey because you had called. Lord, in our day, in our time, would we be that same group of people as a church? Lord, call us by your spirit, we ask. For Jesus' sake. Amen.